I still feel the same way I do, you know, the day that we found out we were losing them. But you learn how to carry it different and you learn how to live differently. Like our new normal now is nothing that it used to be. And so something that we've learned how to do and, and that we fight to do is still be able to live and experience happiness and joy while carrying this new normal of our life that we have that we never wanted. Hey guys, I'm Miles. And I'm Ruthie. And welcome to the Unspoken Podcast, where we believe that saying the unsaid may be the hardest, but one of the most important things we can ever do. Yes. Our authentic self is the best gift that we have to offer this world. But sadly, we live in this culture that tells us that we should hide it. So we would love for you to join us and listen along. And we hope that you might find connection and healing in the courage that no important words go unspoken. Make up fake love, make them all laugh. Come on, someone, take off your mask. It's nice to me. Today on the podcast, we have Ashley Lemieux. She is a writer, speaker, and the CEO and founder of The Shine Project. She is a cheerleader for the underdog who believes in using her story to help others find courage. Her life mission is to help women have the resources they need to shine in their lives. And her company, The Shine Project, provides an online community and platform for women to find support and connection. They sell jewelry products all over the world, and she operates brick-and-mortar stores in both Nashville and Phoenix. Ashley is a fierce advocate for women. She has created a huge following, but it's all fueled by one of the most fascinating stories that I've ever heard. It's a story of loss and tragedy that she has turned into resilience, and it's beautiful. And I'm so glad we get to be with her today and share her story with you. Ashley's become a really dear friend, and her heart and the loss that she has experienced and the way she is using that in a purposeful way to help others is just such a inspiring and beautiful story. So I'm so excited to share her with y'all today. Well, hi guys. (laughs) I'm so excited, Ashley. Thank you so much for being here with us. Oh my goodness. I am so excited to get to sit down with you today. It's such a treat. Thanks for having me. I feel privileged to be here with you guys. So this is going to be fun. I mean, I have been so touched by you, by your story, by your experience, your resilience, by just who you are is so um, encouraging. And it's just really inspired me. And so I'm just really honored that we're going to have an opportunity to get to share your story and encourage other people that are in the thick of it, that, you know, there's life on the other side, even, even in the midst of it, there's still life. And you are such a shining example of that to me. So thank you. Thank you, sister. That's how I feel about you. So this is this I'm excited for this. That's exactly how I feel about you. Give us a little bit of backstory, how you guys ended up in Nashville, you and your husband, Mike. I want to, we'll get into all the things, but like what brought y'all to Nashville last year? Last year, we needed a change in our lives after we went through 
just the most horrific loss. And we thought, you know, what is the next right step for us? Because mm-hmm. we we couldn't even see past what was happening in our current moment. But we knew that in order for us to do anything that we wanted to keep doing in our lives and feel any ounce of hope again, that we needed to leave Phoenix. And people always ask us what specifically brought us to Nashville because we really didn't have very many ties out here. But in our heart, Nashville truly felt like our next right step. And it Mm -hmm. felt like it was calling us home, even though we had never lived here before. So we sold everything that we owned (laughs) in Phoenix and we came out to Nashville to start fresh and experience the healing that the South Hmm. has to offer. And we love it so much. We just hit our year anniversary and I'll never forget when, when we got to our house for the first time sitting out on the porch and all the fireflies were out, I just started crying and I just knew that this was exactly where we were supposed to be. And so here we are. Well, I was lucky enough to meet you not too, too long after y'all had gotten here. And I knew a teeny tiny bit about your story because we had followed each other. I think people had been like, you need to meet this girl. Yes. I had so many people that said, you need to meet Ruthie up in Nashville. It's like, yes, I do. And people said the exact same thing to me and they felt like our stories had some overlap. Um, But I'd love to kind of back up a little bit if you would be willing to tell us a little bit about the Shine Project and how that even got started. Because I feel like that's like such a huge part of who you are and what you offer this world. And that's kind of like the beginning of what this huge piece of the story is. Yes. And this week, we're actually celebrating our six-year anniversary of the Shine Project. So thank you. It feels really weird to say that because I still feel like it just started yesterday. But about About six and a half years ago, I was interning at an inner city high school in Phoenix, and I met these youth who just made my heart split and explode wide open, and I loved them so much. And as I learned about their lives and what it was that they were wanting to do, but then also the obstacles that they faced that were going to prevent them from accomplishing what it was that they truly wanted, I thought, this is this isn't right. This isn't fair. There's so many things stacked against this group of students and there has to be something I can do just to help some of them be able to graduate high school and then continue on to receive a higher education. A lot of the students that I had met were the first in their families to graduate from high school, let alone even consider the possibility of going to college. And they were facing things like having to work multiple jobs and missing school because they were trying to help support their families or needing to stay home to watch their siblings while parents worked or not having a stable home environment and being in a really low income situation. Just all of these things that I never had to worry about growing up and it wrecked me in the best and worst way possible. Mm -hmm. And I just knew that after seeing what I saw there that I'd be held accountable forever if I didn't try to do something to help empower them to take the next step in their lives. So during that time, I had also started a blog because my dream has always been to be a writer. And this was back before Instagram or anything. And so people were reading blogger.com. And so I started my little (laughs) blog 
And I had chosen a word that I wanted to motivate me to, to just have a really successful year as I was going to be graduating from college and I was new, newly married and mm. just wanting to reach some of my own goals. And the word that I had chosen was shine. And so on my blog, we called it the shine project. And I wanted to create an inspirational place where women from around the world could come and encourage each other and to find motivation so that we could all help each other accomplish what we want to do in our lives. So my blog grew during that time that I was interning at this inner city high school so that by the time I graduated from college, I could be self-employed from the tiny amount of ad revenue that I was making off of my blog. And I decided that I could use that platform to help be a voice for these students that I had met during my internship. And I wanted to collide those two worlds together because I wanted the youth that I had met to know that they had cheerleaders around them. And I wanted the women who were reading my blog to be able to wear something every day that they could look at that connected them to a bigger purpose where they knew that their purchase was literally impacting and changing lives. And so I thought that bridging that gap and having everyone just become one big community would be Mm. a home run. So I started a nonprofit organization where we used my blog to fundraise money uh, to send these first-generation college students to school. And then a year after that, I thought, you know what? This is great, but the students still need more. They need jobs, and they need to learn work ethic, and they need to learn leadership skills, and they need opportunities to be within the community so that when they're done with school, they can now be leaders. And so I taught myself how to make jewelry, which I never (laughs) wanted to do in my entire life. And then I taught our first scholarship winners how to make it. At the time, my husband and I were so poor. And so I was like, can I take $300 and buy some jewelry supplies and we'll figure it out because I know at least my mom will buy some of it and (laughs) and, and she'll totally rally her friends to do it. So. At least let's do that. So that's how it all started. And um, that was six years ago. A couple of things in there that were interesting. And, and well, first I want to hear about who are you pre-Shine Project? Because you said, you mentioned you made one reference to so I got fortunate I didn't grow up like that. And I f- thought if I didn't do something about what I experienced, I'd be held accountable. So two things. One, I'd love to know kind of who are you, how'd you grow up? And then second is who would hold you accountable? I grew up in the best family in a little suburb of Phoenix called Ahwatukee. And what word? Yeah. (laughs) Called Ahwatukee. (laughs) Ahwatukee. Ahwatukee. Got it. And growing up there in high school, we would call it our Ahwatukee bubble. We Mm. just, it was just this bubble where, yeah, we went through hard things, but real life, we just didn't really have a concept of what it was because of where we grew up. Yeah. And, but growing up too, I was really shy and I was really insecure, like really shy and really insecure. And mm. I just always, I always kind of felt like the underdog, even if people didn't perceive me that way, that's how I felt. Mm. And so growing up, I also had just this, like heart for wanting to look for the person who maybe felt like me, 
because maybe they could relate to me too. And it was selfish to feel that way because I felt like I didn't really fit in anywhere else. And so I wanted to find the other people who didn't maybe feel like they fit in either. And then maybe we could all fit in within How old were each you other. When I ran into adversity in my twenties and dealt with some mental you know, depression and anxiety. And that's the story I've always told, but I've never really gone back because I grew up with a great family too. And I've started going back recently and telling the story of when I started feeling insecure at a really young age. And I'm finding a lot of people relating to it. That used to just be such a blip. And, and I realize now it's, it's imprinted me in, a, in, in everything that I do. So I loved your story. I, I got to read a little bit about what you've done and what got you there. But something I just, I don't know, even looking at your pictures, I see a little girl, a feisty little girl that is still fighting for what she believes in. And you mentioned earlier about uh, if I didn't do something about this, I'd be held accountable forever. Was that accountable to you or? That was accountable to me and also to God and to the students who I was helping and who were helping me, honestly, but I'd be held accountable to them as well. And that moment for me was my husband and I took one of the students back to school shopping. And I mean, we really didn't have very much money, but but we're like, we can get him a new pair of shoes. He needs at least a new pair of shoes. And so we took him back to school shopping and we dropped him off at where he lived. And I just remember when we pulled up, I just kept screaming in my head, no, 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 no. This, this can't be it. Please tell me it's the next place. It's the next place. This can't be the place. And it, that was where he lived. And when he opened the door, we realized that he was the oldest of five siblings. They were all sleeping on the floor. They didn't have beds. Mm. And I just thought, how can we expect these youth to show up for things like school when they literally don't know if they're going to have a meal mm -hmm. or if their siblings are going to be okay or let's, this doesn't have to be like this. And so that was that moment for me where I knew that if I turned my back on seeing that, then I would be held accountable and I couldn't live with that. Mm. So the shine project, this gets off the ground and how long was that? Was like, not overnight, no. not overnight off the ground. Yeah. Even still, you know, the hustle of, of it all is so real. It's so real and it's <laughs> messy and it's hard. It's so and mean, there's been lots of ups and downs. We were just talking about a little bit before this, but how far into this had y'all started before you meet the kiddos? Let me see. I'm really bad at math. So just give me one <laughs> second. <laughs> We were probably about a year and a half into the Shine Project okay. when, well, when we met our kids, we had just started the Shine Project. When our kids came to live with us, it had been about a year and a half. So by this time, we had moved out of our cockroach-infested condo <laughs> and gotten a house in downtown Phoenix closer to where the students we were employing lived and then turned a couple of the rooms in our house into where they were coming to work and then that's when um we multiplied our family overnight and became a family of four how did y'all end up meeting these kiddos so through my sister's job in las vegas she had met a biological family member 
And then during this time, we became close to uh, Zoe and Shiloh. And that's how we met them originally. Just through her job. Was through her job. Okay. So y'all just were hanging out friends and y'all would see them whenever y'all were visiting. Yes, we would see them when we were visiting and she brought them back to Phoenix sometimes too. Actually, the first time I met them was because she brought them back to Phoenix to spend Easter with our family. And that was the very first time that we met them. And at the time, um, Zoe was three and I'll never forget it that very first weekend. And I need to preface this by saying my husband and I, like, you, you know, you heard the midst of what we were doing in our lives. Becoming parents at that time was not on our radar. Yeah. We were not trying to become parents. We were not trying to become foster parents. We were not trying to adopt. Like the the furthest thing from our mind was becoming parents. It just was. Yeah. Um, that first weekend, and I don't talk about this a lot, but... Um, Zoe, I'll never forget, we had took her to this church Easter egg hunt. And, um, sorry. We were leaving, and I was getting all their stuff ready in the car, and she comes running up the hill with the biggest smile ever. And she says, wait for me, Mom. And I had just met her that earlier that day. And it was just this really impactful. And it wasn't what she said. It was beyond what she said. It was the feeling that meeting my children brought Mm. um, that kind of started our story. Wow. So that first weekend, there was obviously, there was a connection there instantly. Instantly, yeah. Wow. So after that, they go back home and you see them just anytime y'all were visiting for throughout the year. Throughout the year, yeah. What would that look like? Throughout that first year, we would go and when we would stay there, we'd have them sleep over. So we're having sleepovers at my sister's house with the kids. And their favorite thing at that time was to go to Peter Piper Pizza, which is an adult's <laughs> worst friend of me, I say it. <laughs> it's great to keep them entertained, but it's like, please do not make me go to Peter Piper Pizza. <laughs> So we spend days at Peter Piper Pizza or go to the pool or just go spend time. It was just, it was just fun. Yeah. So then a year goes by. Is that right? I want to make sure. Yes, a year goes by. And what happens after that? And I get a call from their biological family member and that tells and who proceeds to ask me if Mike and I will raise the children Mm -hmm. that they want a better life for the children and they knew that we would provide that for them and would we would we raise them what in the world were you thinking when you get this phone call it was weird because i always knew that we were going to be a family or be involved in their lives whatever that looked like mm-hmm. i whether it was we would be uh, great mentors and influences in their lives and have just a very close relationship or whatever that looked like i knew that that was just how it was always going to be from the beginning of time. Um, so I felt that, but also at that same time, someone's calling to ask us to to become parents mm. with no preparation. And, with, and it was literally like tomorrow, wow. can the kids come? Wow. 
And um, I called Mike, my husband, and I said, I said, are you ready to be a dad? And he said, I don't know how to be a dad, but I'll do my best to figure it out so that I'm the best dad that those kids could ever have. Mm. And so I guess it almost wasn't even a discussion that we were all going to become a family so quickly. And this sounds so weird. And I'm sorry, I'm trying to figure out how to put it into words, but it's just like we already were. And now just physically, it's all coming together. Mm. There was just that knowing. Seven days later, we have the kids at our house. Wow. You drive there and we meet halfway and um, bring them back. And we were really excited because that week we we're like, okay, we have no kids things ever yeah. in our house. And I was texting my friends who had kids. I'm like, I literally do not know what children eat. What do I feed them? What do I need to buy? What do I, yeah. are, do I need a car seat or do they sit in boosters? No, I don't, I didn't know. I didn't know anything. Zero to a hundred. Zero to hundred. I'm like, okay. And I'll never forget that first, I mean, the first several months, but specifically that first week and the first couple of days, at the end of the day, we were so tired. And I thought I had been tired before, you know, trying to start up this company and do the things we're doing in our lives. Girl. And then the children came and I was like, what were we even doing with our time before this? I have never been we had so all tired the time in the world. <laughs> like, what were we doing, Mike? I don't understand what's happening right now. Wow. But it was the most beautiful, amazing, frustrating, perfect exhaustion that we've ever experienced. Walk me through that first week. Like, what was it like for the kid? I mean, what was going on in their minds? I wouldn't even know how to make sense of it in my mind. So what does that look like? There are what, four and six? Four and six now. So what does that look like for them? Confusing, hard, frustrating, exciting, happy. I Probably every emotion that a little child could feel is being felt. And... um, we we just we really tried our best to to be where they needed and to be what they needed us mm-hmm. to be and letting them kind of set those those terms but i remember for the first couple of months they used to follow me around the house everywhere i would go like don't leave us or are you going to mm-hmm. leave or if you leave are you going to come back or and so there there was so much adjustment happening for all four of us but you know specific especially these two children who had no say in the situation it was a lot but it was it was good I can't imagine when they first got there like I've even got questions I know some of you may not be able to talk about in terms of the why but I'm sure they had questions at that age it's like why are we here how did you handle that or there were so many questions and we tried to be as open and also as protective as possible. Yeah. Um, but we would just do our best to to just be there for them um, and answer the best that we could. Because honestly, some of the questions we couldn't, we couldn't say, even did you, answer. Did you know why they were like, 
the biological parents, where they were, what happened, all that stuff? Yes, and we knew the gist of it, but those deeper those deeper questions that come as a result of whatever actions are being chosen to be made, um, I couldn't answer those. Mm-hmm. And they've always been, they're so smart. And so the, some of the questions that they were asking for the ages that they were, mm-hmm. were even beyond things that I could, I, that I knew, you what know? Do you, what do you attribute that to, their, their knowledge or wisdom beyond their years at that age? I think inherently just who they are mm-hmm. as humans. They yeah. are just special, smart people that I think I've just always been that way. And so, um, yeah, so something during that time, the answers that I couldn't give them because I didn't know, I tried to give them really firm answers in what I did know, whether that be through word or through action, because the action part was a lot of what was missing. And so um, there was a lot of fear around were we going to leave or, mm. or what was going to happen there? And so I just, I really tried to focus on building on what I had control over building on. You ever think back, I don't want to skip over this moment because I'm picking up a pattern and it's a pretty beautiful thing, but not a lot of people take risk in the way that you do. Mm. Meaning there were, I'm hearing several pivot moments where like I was, we were dirt poor and we used $300 to take a big risk or mm. we sold everything we had and moved to Nashville or, Somebody called and said, will you take my kids? And you said, yes. You didn't have a roadmap. You didn't have a plan. You didn't have resources to do all that. And you just did it. Yeah. My husband laughs about that all the time because he's always like, you never know what's going to happen in our lives because Ashley just, (laughs) she just goes. Um, And I think that's just how I've always been. But I think too, at that time yet, I hadn't been too jaded yet. I... Mm -hmm. I think I I believed in other people having best intentions because I knew what mine were. And I believed, and I still believe, that there is hope, but we are called to do some really hard things sometimes mm-hmm. that we're called sometimes to walk through fire to get to the other side or to learn the lesson. And, and there were certain things in my life that I didn't want to stay the same forever. I I didn't want to live in a cockroach infested condo forever. So the risk of investing $300 and taking this jump, like let's figure this out. And I didn't want my children to not have stability forever. So you know what, let's give them stability in a family and let's figure this out. And so I think when I see things and I don't like how they are, and Mm. I know they don't have to be that way, that I'm like, okay, let's, there's no roadmap, but Let's go. Let's figure this out. You literally go from your lives as two to four, and y'all live together as a family, as a unit, for how many years? For four years. For four years. Yeah. Give us an overview of that four years. It was amazing. Mm -hmm. And I, oh man, how do you put an overview on that? It was full of smashed goldfish in the in the seats of the car and it was full of little giggles after school upstairs and it was full of soccer games and cheerleading um competitions and back to school events and nightly bedtime routines and quiet time as a family it was full of every beautiful thing i could ever want to have in my life and it was perfect and it was also really hard 
because about two and a half years into it, it also became full of being in court, fighting to keep our family together. Mm-hmm. How did that start? Why did that start? So as we were pursuing to turn our permanent guardianship that we had over the children into a finalized adoption. Um, permanent. Yeah, so we had permanent guardianship. So none of us ever had any reason to believe that we weren't going to be a family forever and always. And so at that point, when everyone, and especially the kids, just need more permanency and stability, and okay, now we're going to take the next step and we're going to take the next step for adoption. We've been family for four years and nothing's changing anytime soon. It's never going to change. So let's make that happen. And as we were pursuing that, um, we en- encountered a unexpected contested adoption. Mm. Did that feel out of nowhere? Like, where did that come from? Out of absolutely nowhere. Now, what is that exactly? Just so I mean, it's when someone from the biological family wants the kids back, okay. basically. And you didn't see that coming. No one. No. So all of a sudden, you find out y'all are pursuing adoption you find out that it's going to be contested so what does that look like so we had a court hearing to have the first step of that adoption route because a lot of things had to happen in order for that to be the final outcome and so we had our first hearing for that that was going to be coming in a couple months and one day I go to the mail and come back, and there is a letter saying that our guardianship, our permanent guardianship, is being revoked, and we have a court date that was sooner than the initial uh, um, adoption court date. And I remember reading that, thinking, "Did we not file the pa- the paperwork right? Or like this is this just has to be a mistake? Is this?" I was so confused, but then this this weird sense of, wait, something is happening here that I don't understand and it's not good took over. Mm. And I remember reading that because it was at night when I got the mail. So the kids were asleep and my husband and I were downstairs and I started just shaking mm. and I was sobbing and I had to run to the sink because it was the closest place where I could throw up. And I was just, I just remember like bracing myself on the counter and throwing up over the sink and my husband having to put his knees behind me as like a chair so I wouldn't collapse Mm. and fall on the floor because whatever was happening felt really bad. And that's, um, that's when everything bad started happening. So the next year you're just in and out of court for a year and a half we're in and out of court and mm. none of us know what's going to happen and we um we tried to have the kids not was not know what was going on for as long as possible but then it gets to a point you guys our door our house became a revolving door of these strangers who we were a family for so long and now they're coming getting questions and they're getting mm. interviewed and the questions they're being asked were so inappropriate and so, mm. especially for their age. Um, and so now every month we have caseworkers, guardian ad litems, um, children attorneys, like everyone, every week at least, someone is just popping in unannounced. And so now our home that we've created mm. together 
became this circus where we didn't even feel safe being at home. Anytime my phone rang or the doorbell would ring, we would all literally just hold our breath because we didn't know who it was or why they were there. I cannot imagine emotionally for all of y'all what that was. I mean, you're in survival mode, essentially. Survival mode. And the the times, too, we had court. <laughs> there are no words that describe what it felt like preparing to go to court, being in court, and then coming home from court mm-hmm. and trying to not have the kids know that we were even in court that day. Like, it was so, I was so sick. I was so, we were so sick so stressed, so much anxiety. Um, and it was just so hard. And on top of that, we have an attorney who, you know, in the amount of a year and a half, we're spending, you know, well over six figures just trying to keep our family together. Mm -hmm. So it's like everything that you could be stressed out in your life is just literally happening all at once and you imploding and you don't know what's going to happen tomorrow, but you know that today you have the children. And so you need to be the best for them that you can be that day. spoken about the fact that like there were a lot of lies said about you that you also had to endure which and at the time you weren't allowed to speak about it will you tell um the audience what you told me the other night about what happened to your throat yeah so during the time that we were in court about probably eight months into it there was a court order that we could no longer post photos of our children online with us, which we'd been doing for years, just as like a, like, this is our family. Here we are. So for a year, the children are not seen online. Um, the reason that ruling was made was because of lies that were told about me. Um, so people are asking online, where are the kids? What's happening in court? I'm being just drug through the mud, my character, not even my husband, just me. It became a woman versus woman thing. And I, the things that were said about me were so horrific, um, but I couldn't say anything. And our final big trial hadn't, wasn't coming yet. And I'd literally just have to sit there and listen. And I just go home and we weren't allowed to talk about it with anybody. And we're just like this silent battle. So during this time with all of this anxiety and just having to be quiet in the biggest pain of our lives, I started anytime I would have anxiety, this is like, the lymph node in your neck, as a result of stress, sometimes it can be carried there and it can swell. So toward the end of our fight, after everything had just been going on for so long, it literally would turn into the size of like mm. a softball. And I could hardly even swallow or eat my food. But it was like everything that I was wanting to scream and have someone just mm. listen to me say and demand and and try to fight for justice. It's like, it all just got stuck right in my throat because I couldn't use my voice. We were voiceless. The kids were voiceless. Mike was voiceless. And 
we felt it and feeling that was one of the worst mm. parts of going through everything because all of it was just so unjust and damning and there was nothing in our power, no best attorney, no amount of money, no amount of time, nothing could change what was happening to us. Mm. So mm. what ends up happening with the courts? So during that time, the whole time Mike and I were and, and our support system of our family were like, this is horrible. This is like the hardest thing we're going to go through ever in our lives, but it's going to be worth it. This is the bridge that has to be crossed so that family can be safe and that we can all be stable. And we don't know why the boat's broken, rocking so hard, but in our minds, it, it made no logical sense that we would never be physically together. Like that was, I mean, that was so Never far beyond. We're a family. Mind. Why would we not ever physically be together? So after uh, we've been in court for about a year and a half and our final trial, like the big week long trial was um, scheduled for February. And, and that's how slow the juvenile <laughs> court system works. So we mm. finally were getting like our trial after a year and a half. So the month before, and I had stopped traveling for work. Everyone just freaked out when I was gone. I freaked out when I was gone. The kids freaked out. Like it was just not the time yeah. to be traveling for work. But our biggest event every year is in the uh, beginning of January. And I just felt like, you know what? <laughs> They've tried to take everything else away from us. And at the end of this, we're either going to be flatlined or there's some things that we need to hold on to so that we can keep trying to just live as normally as possible. And so I decided I was going to go, go on this work trip. It was across the country in Atlanta. And I was only going to be gone for three days. And the kids were really anxious that I was leaving. I kept telling them, don't worry. We can FaceTime every night, um, every morning before I go to the event. And I'm going to be back in three days. I'll see you in three days. And they were just freaking out. The night before I left, the kids couldn't sleep because they were so nervous that I was asleep. Mm. And my little girl called me into her room. And for some reason, I just felt like I needed to spend more time with her. Like, usually it's like, you have school in the morning. We need to go to bed right now. But I ended up staying in there and talking with her for a couple hours. And she kept saying... I don't know why, Mommy. I just don't feel like I'm going to see you for a long time. I said, baby, it's okay. I'm going to be home in three days, I promise. So the next day, they dropped me off at the airport. And both kids start crying. I'm like, it's okay, you guys. I'm going to see you in three days. And Zoe looked at me again. And she was crying. And she said, Mom, I don't feel like I'm going to see you again for a really long time. And when I walked into the airport, they left. And the craziest thing happened. All of a sudden, like, my entire being was overwhelmed with losing my children. Mm-hmm. I can't explain it other than that, other than I knew I had just seen my kids for the last time. Wow. And I didn't know what it meant. And I, I tried really hard to get to um, the gate that... I was flying out of and as soon as I got there I literally just collapsed on the floor and I was sobbing like 
but it was really confusing because I, in my head, I was like, well, why would that be the last time I saw them? I'm be back in three days and this is whatever. So a couple of weeks before I had left, they had called an emergency court hearing for the day after that I was leaving. And uh, we were assured that it was nothing, that it was okay. It was just things to get ready for a trial the next month. And, and it was fine. And even my attorney advised me to go on the trip. Like we did not, I did not need to be there. And so that court hearing was the next day. And there were some things that we told um, the judge that we were pissed off about and that we weren't going to stand for anymore and that we weren't going to see the kids keep being torn apart like this, like they're being destroyed in this process. And we wanted no part of, of seeing their destruction. We wanted no part of it. We were done. So Mike called me after and he said, they're returning the kids. And it was like this really surreal feeling where I didn't really know, like I heard what he was saying, but I didn't really know what he was saying. And then he said, um, they're not going to give you time to come home to say goodbye. And he said, and we're not allowed to tell them what's happening. Um, he said, so to say goodbye, you need to write them a letter. And that night, um, my Airbnb in Atlanta, how do you do, like, how does a human expect another human to write a goodbye letter to their children? I don't, mm. And what do you say? So I wrote a goodbye letter to, to each of the kids that night. And we FaceTimed for one last time. And I didn't want their last memory of me to be um, bad. Mm. And so I could only talk for a short amount of time because I could hardly keep it together. And Zoe was so happy and excited. And she's like, dad, let us get McDonald's two times today. We never even get McDonald's one time. Can you believe that he let us get it two times today? But I knew I had let him mm. then get it two times. And they didn't know. Mm. And there was nothing that I could do to prepare them for what was going to happen the next morning. The next morning, my husband had to wake them up for school like nothing was wrong. He dropped them off at school, knowing that he wasn't going to see them again. He had to go back to our house where an angel from the state came. She wasn't even supposed to come, but she came to help Mike pack up their things. And my mom came and her husband and the state worker's husband came to help pack up all their things. They rented a trailer so that the kids could at least have stuff. And um, Mike packed an overnight bed for them, in, or an overnight bag, so that what was going to be happening is this angel from the state was going to go pick them up from school um, and take them to the meeting spot and tell them that they weren't coming home mm -hmm. and that they were now going to go live here. And um, Mike had to pack a bag. And so in that overnight bag, he put our letters and he put their favorite stuffed animals. I was like, Mike, they don't have any pictures. Like, there's nothing. And I said, you got to find, like, frames that can fit off of our fireplace because that was where we had our family photos. So he grabbed frames off the fireplace and put them in their overnight bag. And that was 
That was about a year and a half ago. Ashley. Sister, I'm so... I can't... I mean... My heart just... Weeps for you. I can't even imagine... That... Trauma. That heartbreak. I cannot... Because I haven't had to imagine it. So you come home. What is that? I mean, what do you do? So we didn't come home at first. I actually, we met in Nashville. And because I knew I couldn't go home. And he couldn't be there. And so we finally met each other here. And um, we went down to a restaurant. And we are just sitting there like, what, what just happened? Because you're still in this state of shock and grief and this isn't actually real and this is real and it's the most horrific thing that's ever happened to us um and we just talked about what do we what do we do like what what do we do you know um and we kind of decided we we're gonna move to Nashville that's that's when we we just knew that first that first day after is we can't live in Arizona we're moving to Nashville and um so we went home a few days later oh my gosh that was walking into that empty house the only things left in their rooms were their beds and their dressers Mm. and having them not be there but at the same time over the course of the next couple of weeks there'd be times where I would just go sit in each of their rooms Mm -hmm. because like I could still like feel them there and I wanted to even though it was so painful I just wanted to but that's been something that's really hard is that the further that time goes you want to preserve as much memory as possible but time is kind of tricky like that where you forget and and they become more distant and um it's just hard but we just kept taking it one day at a time and honestly we still are like we still I still feel the same way I do you know the day that we found out we were losing them but you learn how to carry it different and you learn Mm. how to live differently like our new normal now is nothing that it used to be and so something that we've learned how to do and, and that we fight to do is still be able to live and experience happiness and joy while carrying Mm. this new normal of our life that we have that we never wanted. I'm still reeling from the story, honestly. I've got thoughts and questions and it's hard to go anywhere just other than just be here with you. Uh, I really don't give a crap how it feels with the podcast. I just want to be here with you could be on air or off air and after you tell a story like that i just kind of just want to sit and honor the space that you've been in your husband's been in and the kids went through it's not okay i'm kind of angry too not only does somebody rip your humanity out of your hands but they stole your voice in the process that maybe is what makes me the most angry is the limitations they put on you to use your voice and be able to say what you felt and advocate for and I guess the the way they did that was use legal leverage, did they say? Yeah, legal leverage. We had to fight to even be able to have an attorney represent us. Oh. What? But like, how do, they, how do they have the right to silence you on that last day to say you can't let them know? 
how do they have the right to take the kids in the first place? I mean, I like, could, yeah. I mean, it's that, messy and it's, it's messy. That to me, I mean, I, I could see how you, it would be complicated, but that's asinine. The fact, I mean, likely there's a risk that you destroy a kid's life by taking him away like that. But then the way they do it, the process, the, do they, oh, it just breaks my heart. It breaks my heart for you, but it breaks my heart for them. It just breaks my heart for anybody that's gone through that because it's almost like they're beyond, they're not trauma informed, they're trauma ignorant. They have no clue what they're doing to the kids and what they're doing to you. Nothing about that supports their well-being going forward. Nothing. No. The the major um, you know, decision makers that make a lot of these decisions aren't aren't trauma informed with children. They they aren't experts in in how to to deal with trauma for children. And so decisions are made that should never be made that affect human lives. And sometimes so, I think it's easy to be like well, it's the system and you're in the system. And so then this is going to be the outcome. And But in reality, the system is made up of humans with hearts and souls and lives and futures and pasts and dreams and hopes. And and um, yeah, it, it breaks me so much. Um, something I think about a lot is like, <laughs> what did the kids go through that day? You know, like being picked up by someone else and then dropped off somewhere else and told what they were told like I can't how many times have you replayed that scene in your probably every day yeah sure yeah Yeah. one of the things that I've loved um, and just been so encouraged by and I'm sure it's this tension because it's also so heart wrenching but one of the things that you've said that you use your Instagram for is because you want to be able to speak, it's almost like these love letters to your kids that you know one day they will see. And so you keep just lavishing them with love and truth, even though right now they aren't able to hear your voice. Um, what has that been like? I can't, I mean, honestly, I just. It's been, um, there's certain times where I just want the kids to know certain things. Yeah. Whether it's because they're starting school or because their birthday's coming up or it's just a normal Monday and maybe they're stressed about something. And there's just times that I just want them to know how much I love them. I can't tell them any other way than posting on social media and hoping one day they'll see it. And... It's helpful for me to be able to finally vocalize things and have the opportunity to do that. To be honest, I still have a lot of anxiety when I voice things because I wasn't able to for so long that I'm always like, mm. if I if I say You're this or do this, like what's some, and then I'm like, what is someone gonna do to me? Yeah, they've they done took the, worst. the kids. Like yeah. what <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um. So I kind of live in that weird world, but. Mm. But it's all just so, again, my husband and I every day are just doing the best that we can with this new set of circumstances that we live in. And some days we do a lot better than we do other days. And we just kind of have to take each day and each moment and each thing that we feel that we need to share with our children as it comes. Zoe's birthday 
last September. She, um, it was her eighth birthday, and I really just wanted to flood uh, her with acts of service in her honor. And so we had a hashtag happy birthday Zoe. And I was like, whatever it is, I just spilled water all over my pants. <laughs> <laughs> I'm totally, oh no. It's like I just peed my pants. <laughs> That was like the most perfect timing ever. <laughs> but <Sweet girl. laughs> it's like so cool. Think, oh my gosh, you guys, this is great. Um, <laughs> it honestly wouldn't be a day if I didn't spill something everywhere. Same. Um, but for her birthday, we had hundreds if not thousands of random acts of kindness hashtagged under her name and so they're all there so that i could put them in a book happy birthday zoe and and one day i we create i have like these little just small little boxes of collect of things i've collected for the kids that if i get to see them again one day it's like here's this trip that we went on i was really thinking of you and so i got you this little thing um but with being able to share on instagram like her birthday it was so hard but it also was so powerful to be able to have the pain of everything be used for a purpose. Some of the things that people were doing that day in her honor were just amazing. And so that also um, has been helpful to be able to just take our situation and try to have other people um, positively impacted from it. Yeah. I know that you sharing and using your voice has been such a powerful thing for people that are also in the midst of just hell. What practical things have y'all done for yourselves to just like heal and to love on yourselves and to like, it's been this constant for years, you were having to live in this like tension and then your worst imaginable outcome comes to fruition so on the other side of that like what do you what do you do to like bring healing to your hearts or to take care of yourselves and to love on yourselves after such crazy trauma that you've experienced it's been very hard yeah. for lack of better words um something that has been really difficult that I never thought of was during all of the court stuff, we had to get permission to leave the city with the kids or to go on vacation to Disneyland or to like everything we did was under such scrutiny and watch. We just had to have permission for anything. And I'd always say, I just want our freedom again. I want our freedom. Well, now that we have our freedom, I was telling like, it's like our freedom's too big now. Mm. And because we were so confined and watched and just like caged almost for so long. It's been hard to have all of our choices back mm -hmm. to know what to do next because it's hard to break out of the box we were put in, even though it's not there anymore. And so what healing has looked like or our road for healing has looked like it for me, it's looked like a lot of therapy, something that my, I have this amazing psychologist I go to, and she, uh, something she always says is, remember to breathe. And and that's something too that, whether it's good or bad in my life, something that has helped is just to remember that we're here and we're living and it only lasts for so long. So 
the hard moments and the good moments, they're only, there's only so much time that we experience those. And I always tell my husband, I don't want to wake up at the end of my life and say, man, I regret just not living my life because I was too sad. I don't want that to happen. And, and so healing for us has also looked like feeling things and not putting blocks out so, it, so that we don't have to feel things because you can't only feel good things. Right. And if we were to block out feeling the pain that we feel, then that would mean that we would be blocking out all of the other good things that are still happening and that we're still experiencing in our lives. And so that's been something that's been really hard to navigate and learn how to do. But um, we also say, you know, before this, there were so many people living in pain and we just, we didn't know. Mm. And now we know we've been woken up and, and so now we try to heal with our eyes wide open, looking at life and other people and what we need and what they need and just keep doing the best that we can. I love that. I love the idea of like, you can't unknow it now. You, we have eyes now. And I think that's one of the beautiful things that comes along with suffering is all of a sudden you wake up and you realize you have these new eyes. Like I, you can't unsee what you've seen. And now you can't look at someone and just assume that their life is good and easy. Like I, I used to think that I used to look at people and like, Oh, their life's good. Like mine. And they like, now I, I can't, when I meet people, I just assume that they've had really, really, really hard shit. And if they haven't yet, they will. And that their life is really layered and difficult and there's been beautiful things and just really, really, really effed up painful things that they've had to live through. And then I also, to go along with what you said, the good always comes along with the bad. Like when I see someone that's like, honestly, like truly you see that joy, I just assume that they've also been through really, really painful shit. I can't assume otherwise you know, because life is just, it's so hard. And you've been using this really broken, painful, fucked up thing that y'all have had to live through, like literal appearance, worst nightmare. And you've chosen to use that as a way to help other people and to let your pain become purposeful. And I know it also helps you. It's like a, it's like what we've talked about. It's like, it's reminding yourself of these truths. And I'm just constantly blown away and awed by what you're doing with your pain. It's, it's humbling to say the very least to get Mm. to as a friend, like I'm, I'm in awe of you because so many people just lay down and want to die and just let that be it, you know, and not want to continue to live and to choose life and to get up. And some days it's just getting up. And that is a huge feat. And I'm just, I'm like, I'm so proud of you. Like I'm so, I'm so proud of you. Um, you are a treasure. Sweet friend. Thank you, Rosie. I am, uh, I'm really glad you sought out counseling through this whole process or is that what you said earlier? You've done a lot of therapy. Yeah. Good. <laughs> and, uh, did they offer it to you? 
during that time the system or did you have to take it upon yourself? Oh, no. No. Yeah. Isn't that something? I'm sorry. I'm just going to keep calling them out. We can call them out. Yeah. Uh, we were um, also the ones responsible getting our children therapy during that time. There's really? And had to, yeah. Okay. Well, good on you for doing that. Um, how you mentioned early on in the conversation that you're, you had accountability to you and, and to God to kind of right some of the wrongs that you saw, which birthed this beautiful thing called the Shine Project. How has your faith played a role in this whole process? That's a big question. Something that was really hard for me right when we lost the children is that I knew that we were going to be a family forever. Like I knew with every bone in my body that things were going to be okay and that we were going to be protected and that we were going to walk through this fire, but then it was going to be okay. And I knew that being okay meant the adoption was going to be final. Mm-hmm. And I just knew, just like I, I knew that we we're supposed to be a family. I just knew it was going to be okay. And so then when it wasn't okay, I got really confused and I got really mad at God. And my faith that I thought that I had got really shaken and I, I just, I didn't understand. And recently what's happened is that my faith is different and than it used to be. In a way now, again, where I feel like I've been woken up and in a way where I am learning things about God that I could not have known before that he's not absent in um, the midst of pain, but he's right there. And right now my faith something that I just have to have faith in because it keeps me going every day is the faith and the hope that one day our family will be whole again, mm. that God will restore what was lost and broken and that at some point, whether it's this life or the next, it just has to be okay. And that's something that I've been trying to hold on to. Mm. And and how has the current uh, narrative in the media with what we're watching down at the border, what's, is, what's that bringing up for you? It's something that we don't, we don't give a lot of voice. We don't put a lot of voice or campaigning into, into children's rights or into how trauma is being treated or how children in the foster care system, how they're being advocated for. It is not happening and there aren't decision, big decision players in place um, that help protect the children in this country as well as children at the border. And so it's hard when we want change in one area and overall the entire system is so flawed that it's hard for that to happen because we can't jump to Z when we haven't even figured out A. Yeah. I can only imagine. Oh, well, let me say this. I We get the honor with what I am a part of on site in our foundation to uh, have a front row seat for a lot of people trying to rediscover who they are amidst some brokenness and uh, rewrite or kind of rebuild their story and pick up a lot of broken pieces. And we hear a lot of pain. And recently, the only thing I can compare 
my experience in sitting with and listening to you share your story is we recently took 50 parents, bereaved parents, through a, a one-week intensive with top trauma and grief experts from around the country. And these are parents who've, um, you know, whose kids have, have died, adult children or children of various ages from a year to five years, 10 years, 15, 20 <sighs> Somebody, I don't know if it was Ruthie or you earlier on, it said the ultimate loss. It is the ultimate loss. And I'm now I'm a parent, so I get it at some level. I don't get what it's like to lose it like you do and like they did. But when I watch, listened to you, I didn't know the parallel would be so similar. And I'm sorry for not uh, getting that sooner. Uh, even the first time I heard your story, we were briefly together and I heard a snippet. I don't think I got it until now. And having sat with and watched them grieve uh, the ultimate loss, which is, uh, I don't know of a greater trauma. And then for you, uh, what happened and the fact that they're still out there, I don't know what you can, I'm so glad that your psychologist is saying breathe. Cause that's about all I can do is breathe on your behalf. It's just been a year and a half too, but I guess what I want to affirm is the way you're processing and dealing with it is a beautiful thing to watch. And what you're, you're in the process of doing with it. And we're always on the journey. We will always and forever be on the journey. But sister, it is beautiful. It is so beautiful and it is so brave and as such your vulnerability is your strength it is your power and the way that you are using it in this world it is more power than I can ever put into words and articulate right now um and it's a gift to us you guys have just built me up today <laughs> thank you for everything that you've said I think sometimes when you feel like you're doing the best that you can you feel like you're doing the best that you can and you're not really sure if anything that you're doing is right and you're just trying to keep moving forward. And so I appreciate everything that that you guys have, have said and, and for letting me share. And I think about this a lot. People say, you know, it's brave to share and to be vulnerable and, and to help other people. And, and something that I think is I feel so lucky that I can because I think that the biggest heroes are the heroes who are stuck in pain and captured there and can't use their voice. Mm. And there's no one who knows their stories and, and maybe they're not getting the help that they need. And so I always think, well, if I can share my story and, and somehow that person who can't share the, theirs can hear it and find any source of anything, hope, anything within it. Um, I just feel like now that I can finally share my story, that it is my privilege mm. to, and I'm grateful that I can use my voice to finally, again, to be able to help build up other people. So thanks for everything. Yes. Uh, before we close, we wanted to give you a copy of that. Tell us what you're looking at. I don't know. Is that me? I can't be. Your me. husband said it was. <laughs> <laughs> I honestly don't think I've ever. I don't know if I've ever seen this picture. Stop. Before. 
Wow. Really? No. Seriously. Your mom sent it to him. I died. <laughs> how old do you think you might have been there? Oh, my gosh. I don't know how old our kids when they first start walking. Year and a half? Maybe. I This, we had to have been in Seattle because that's where I lived at that age. And it looks like we're on the water. Wow. I can't believe you're seeing this photo. Yeah, please. I honestly don't know if I've seen this. This one's like, is that me? <laughs> <laughs> wow. So what are some things, like if you could go back to your younger self, what are things that you wish you could say to her that she needed to hear? Hmm. Honestly, I think a lot of things I would say to her were things that I would say to myself right now. I would tell her her voice is important and that she's going to go through some really hard things throughout her life that make her question that. But she has to keep using it. And she also has to keep using it to help other people who can't use theirs. And I would tell her that there's going to be hard things, but there's going to be some really great things too. And all the things that she was looking forward to doing, that they're coming. And and so to keep pressing forward and, and to also to say yes, to keep saying yes, even when her heart bro- gets broken, to not let that stop her from saying yes again. Because a lot of those yeses that she'll make are going to be the yeses that that impact her life in such a profound way that I can't imagine her saying no to. Yes. Your voice matters and but your story matters. What's the best way that people can, can find you and connect to your work and your world? The best way that we can be found is online at theshineproject.com. Also on Instagram. We really try to, I really try to cultivate just a supportive community there. Mm-hmm. So on Instagram at the shine project as well. Um, and come come find us <laughs> yes you're doing beautiful work sister thank and you this has been such a sweet cherished time to have with you and a real honor so thank you for sharing i know talking about it is really hard and it brings up painful memories so it means so much so thank you thank you for sharing it with me and creating this space i appreciate it I would echo and say thank you. And my uh, assessment or perception in sitting with you for the last hour is good human, um, good leader, inspiring change agent, and maybe most importantly, good mom. Thank you. So thank you. Thanks for sitting with us. Thank you. Make up fake love, make them all laugh Come on, someone, take off your mask It's nice to me Thank you guys so much for being here with us today. We know that your time is valuable, so it just means the world to us that you would spend your time and energy with us. The music from our podcast is from one of my favorite bands, Oliver Riot, and the song is called Alcatraz, and it is from their EP Hallucinate, and 
I just cannot speak highly enough about these boys. They have a new record coming out soon, and you should check them out. They're amazing. Definitely go get their music wherever you can get it. They are amazing, and you're going to love them as much as we do. If you want to learn more about The Unspoken Podcast, please go to theunspokenpodcast.com for show notes and information about the guest. And please follow us on Instagram at The Unspoken Podcast. We'd also love for you to subscribe to the podcast and help us spread the news and share this because we cannot wait to show you what's up next. And we will be with you all again soon.